Well, good morning, everyone. And if you brought a copy of Scripture uh, uh, to your television set or your computer or whatever you're watching this on, your mobile device, please find the book of Exodus as we return to our series in the book of Exodus and chapter 11. And a sermon titled, The Limits of God's Patience. Thanks again for joining us. The praise team will return afterwards to culminate our time in worship. So, Dateline, March 15th, 2020. I don't think this is going to be quite like 9-11, but I don't think any of us are going to quickly forget the, these days that we're living in with the COVID-19 coronavirus going on. And really, if you think about this, it's only two and a half months old. On December 31st in Wuhan, China, this sort of went public. And we all kind of wondered what it was. And now after two and a half months, there's all kinds of craziness. Stock market going wild. Billions have gone out the door. And there's a ton of uncertainty. And no doubt in many of your hearts and minds as well. Just the other day, I gathered with a bunch of men that I meet with regularly, uh, not all of them being Christians, uh, most of them, but some of them brand new Christians, some of them still trying to determine whether they want to embrace this one true God that we love and preach. And I asked the question, what's happening here? Now, when I, when I walked into the group, they were actually having a sort of a a hoot of a time laughing about this and joking about that and maybe seeing this as maybe exaggerated, overreaction, and I'm sure some of you watching this think the same thing. But before that morning was over, no one was laughing anymore. No one was joking. We all saw this as something that God was doing, and we asked the question, that's what we posed, what is God doing? How are we to respond those answers came swiftly, and as I said, they became very serious. And they, those men, before we were done in that hour, began to see a much bigger picture of God. Now, of all the dramas that the Old Testament provides, none surpasses the Passover. And that's our brand new series heading into the Easter season. That's what we're calling it, the Passover. After a series of warnings from God and devastating judgment upon the Egyptian gods, small g, the greatest judgment was still to come, the death of every firstborn in all of Egypt, not protected by the blood. The final plague upon Egypt would be so devastating, it would require an entire chapter as a sort of prelude to it. That's why I've encouraged you to go to Exodus chapter 11. And it serves as a warning to all of us that there is a limit to God's patience. And they should have already known this by now. And those of you reading through your Bibles would know this by now. Because in Genesis chapter 6, just before God destroyed the entire world by way of a flood, he told Noah, my spirit will not strive, it will not abide, it won't continue with uh, indefinitely men, flesh. 
There was a limit to God's patience at the end of which he destroyed the world. And this is a reminder, this passage of scripture, and uh, to us today in 2020, and all that we're experiencing right now with the coronavirus, that God, and hear this clearly, God will not share his glory with anyone else or anything else. And yet he's a patient God. There's a limit to it, but he's patient. Many of you know the passage in 2 Peter chapter 3, where Peter writes that the Lord is not slow uh, to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient toward us. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to what? You know, repentance. That's what God is looking for, genuine repentance. Now, when we left off in this series a few months ago, there were nine devastating judgments from God upon Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Moses has been called by God in the early chapters of Exodus dramatically out of the burning bush. He's gone to Pharaoh. He's said that classic line, let my people go, representing God. In fact, the Bible tells us that before long, Pharaoh would see Moses as God himself. And through this series of judgments, nine of them leading up to the epic one that we'll look at in more detail in the weeks to come. The entire land of Egypt is decimated. I mean, Pharaoh's own servants are coming to him and say, let him go. There's nothing left of us. And some of you might be thinking, if you've read through this or you've studied with us, you know, was this God's uh, uh, wrenching effort to sort of wrench his people away, uh, out of Egypt? I mean, was, it, was it as if God was saying, hmm, that one didn't work. Let me try another plague. No, that, that, what, that was not what was going on here. God could have taken his people out of Egypt just like that. But he was one by one methodically decimating, destroying all of the gods of Egypt. In fact, he had told Pharaoh repeatedly. Uh, he'd warned him through Moses, and he told Moses over and over again that Pharaoh would not go in spite of all these judgments. But here's what the very next chapter tells us, and I want you to see it. God says, on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. Look at that. This is what God was doing. He was methodically taking down all of the gods of Egypt, and we've looked at many of those in our previous messages. In fact, Alex Motier says this, and I, I want to read it to you in his commentary uh, on the Passover. He writes, Divine patience and forbearance wait while every avenue of moral probation is offered, tried and exhausted. But then comes the point which Jesus underlined in his parable when he said, Last of all, God sent his son. The word of God cannot be refused endlessly. There always has to be an end, a meeting with the God whom our refusals have offended to the point of finality. And that's what I mean when I titled this message, The Limit, or The Limits, that is, of God's Patience. Today, all of you are in 
your homes or other people's homes, you're gathering together perhaps in small groups. And we're sort of quasi-quarantined here from gathering anyway. And no telling what kind of separation symptoms the experts are going to come up with as a result of this latest uh, world pandemic. Uh, I know that I miss you already. I'd love to interact with you, shake hands, give hugs and all those things that social distancing, you know, doesn't allow us to do right now. But what is God doing? What's he doing right now? Perhaps a better question is, who is this God who's doing what he's doing? Who is this God that we trust, if indeed we trust him at all? I think times like these and virtually every personal crisis we go through, or in this case, world crisis, is intended to test our mettle to see whether or not we trust the living God who will not be mocked, not perpetually anyway, and does have a limit to his patience. Who is this God who displayed his power to the Egyptians? That's the question we're posing uh, this morning. Who is this God who displayed his power to the Egyptians? Well, the first thing I want you to notice this morning is he is a jealous God. Chapter 11, verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, yet one more plague I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. One more plague and you're out of here. And that's because, you know, blood, boils, gnats, flies, frogs, hail, locusts, pitch, darkness wasn't enough. As we saw, and as we've already said, Every one of those plagues were representative of Egyptian gods, and God was taking them down. Why? Why was he doing this? I'll tell you why. Because God's a jealous God, that's why. And we're told that repeatedly in Scripture. Listen to just a few of them. Uh, Exodus 20, verse 5. You shall not bow down or serve other gods, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Exodus 34, verse 14, you shall worship no other God for the Lord whose name is jealous. Did you know that? God's name is jealous? Is a jealous God, unquote. Deuteronomy 4, 24 says, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God, unquote. So God is the only one who can be holy and wholly jealous at the same time and for his name's sake. And I think some of you are probably thinking, well, yeah, you know, you're preaching the Old Testament. That's that Old Testament God. Really? Listen to what James has to say about God. Do you suppose it is no purpose that the Spirit says he, that is the Spirit of God, yearns, there it is, jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. God wants you. He wants me. And he doesn't just want part of us. He wants all of us. He's not going to share us with anyone else. He doesn't share his glory with anyone else. He's a jealous God. The great pastor, theologian, and um, great man of God during the modernist era of over 100 years ago, his name was B.B. Warfield. Warfield. 
He wrote a sermon on the, on the Spirit of God jealously yearning for all of us. And it's a very encouraging sermon. And I just want to read an excerpt to you because it's so powerful. Here's what the great theologian wrote over 100 years ago. He writes this in a sermon titled, The Love of the Holy Spirit. See us steeped in sin of the world, loving evil for evil's sake, hating God and all that God stands for, ever seeking to drain deeper and deeper the cup of our sinful indulgence. The Spirit follows us unwaveringly through it all. He's not driven away because we're sinners. He comes to us because being sinners, we need him. He is not cast off because we reject his loving offices. He abides with us because our rejection of him would leave us helpless. He does not condition his further help upon our recognizing and returning his love. I love that. His continuance with us is conditioned only on his own love for us. And that love for us is so strong, so mighty, and so constant that it can never fail. When he sees us immersed in sin, and that's where some of you are right now, immersed in sin. Warfield writes, when he sees us immersed in sin and rushing headlong into into destruction, he does not turn from us. He yearns for us with jealous envy. That's your God. Warfield's not done. It is in the hands of such love we have fallen. And it is because we have fallen into the hands of such love that we have before us a future of eternal hope. When we lose hope in ourselves, when the present becomes dark and the future black before us, when effort after effort has issued only in disheartening failure and our sin looms big before our despairing eyes, when our hearts hate and despise themselves, And we remember that God is greater than our hearts and cannot abide the least iniquity. The spirit whom he has sent to bring us to him still labors with us. Hallelujah. Warfield didn't say that. I did. Not in indifference. He still labors not in indifference or hatred, but in pitying love. Yea, his love burns all the stronger because we so deeply need his help. He is yearning after us with jealous envy, unquote. Wow. Powerful words from a great man of God. God is jealous. And he jealously desires to possess all of you. So... People of God, forsake your idols. God's patience will not last forever. Now, he's a jealous God, but I want you to see from this passage, he's also a gracious God. And this is almost comical, but the second verse says, Speak now in the hearing of the people, that they ask every man his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and for gold jewelry. Now, I was tempted to just run over the top of this, but... This was actually prophesied earlier when Moses met, or met with God at that burning bush experience. God told him then back in chapter 3, you're not, gonna just, you're not leaving Egypt empty-handed. You're going to basically drain the coffers there. 
I mean, I don't know how you would put this in the vernacular. You, you see that Corvette over there you've always wanted? It's yours. You know, you know Madge's diamond and a gold necklace. <laughs> Take it. By the way, the very next chapter tells us that this was so overwhelming that many Egyptians even joined the Israelis as they made their way out of Egypt. Now let me be quick to tell you, don't link me to the liars who have the health, wealth, you know, gospel, but that's no gospel at all. I'm not going there. But I do want to tell you this. They went out with a lot. <laughs> and they not only went out with a lot, the 105th Psalm tells us that when they went out, two million Jews strong, when they went out, none of them were feeble. Have you ever read that? None of them stumbled. None of them were feeble. In fact, the Hebrew word carries somebody who's wobbly in their legs. Think about this. Two million Jews enslaved, impoverished, beaten, tortured, beyond their limit or limitations. And yet when they went out after this many, many years of decimation, they went out strong. They went out healthy. What's the point here? Here's the point, dear ones. Your God is a gracious God, even in your trial. He's a gracious God, even in your trial. He will be with you. He will uphold you with his righteous right hand. He'll get you through the waters. He'll get you through the fire. He'll get you through the darkness. His spirit yearns for you. He is a gracious God. Behold your God and love him back for his love for you. He's also an empowering God. And I want you to see that as he describes Moses in verse 3 where it says, And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt and in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. I mean, I mean, can you imagine after these nine plagues, they would have been just so fear struck just to see the sight of Moses. God raised up men like him today, huh? Hated yet revered. I will remind you, those of you who have been with our study previously back in chapter 7, God said to Moses, Pharaoh will be like God to you. And we told you that the Hebrew word like isn't even in there. So literally, God said to Moses, Pharaoh is God to you. Truly a God-empowered man. As I was thinking about this, I, I remember the story of my friend Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He's been dead for a long time, but I still consider him a friend. Back in 1857, he was testing the acoustics in the Crystal Palace where he was going to preach. Testing the acoustics in this empty cavern that he was preaching in. I guess I can relate to that right now. He just walked up on the platform and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And a janitor up in the top rafter trusted Christ as Savior right there. You talk about power. You talk about spirit empowerment. God had his hand upon that man. It was just a few years after that that a traveling preacher by the name of Henry Varley was preaching for D.L. Moody and in, talked with D.L. Moody, who was almost a contemporary, pretty much was a contemporary of Spurgeon. Varley said to Moody, quote, Moody, the world has yet to see what God will do with a man fully consecrated to him. 
Well, that's like saying sick him to a guy like Moody. In fact, Moody said, by God's help, I aim to be that man. And what a mighty man of God Moody was. He wasn't eloquent. People made fun of him. They, they wrote caricatures of him in the local papers. But no one could deny the power of God on the man D.L. Moody. In the midst of a world in crisis right now, and you can downplay it all you want. Yeah, this is overreaction. Let me tell you something. Most people are preaching empty houses right now, so you can downplay it all you want. It's the real deal. May God raise up mighty men and women of God who love Jesus, love the gospel, are fearless and empowered by God. And it might be you, young man. It might be you, young lady, whoever you are. May God raise up spirit-empowered people in this generation during this time in the midst of this crisis to lift up his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to remind you that the Lord Jesus told us in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 21, we told that, he told us that the latter times when there be famines and earthquakes and pestilences in various places, he said this in Luke 21 in verse 13, he said, this will be your opportunity to bear witness have you ever read that? Right in the middle of it. Jesus is saying, don't miss the opportunity. This is a wonderful opportunity for us to trust God, to go in his strength and his power and change the world that he has given his son to. God raised up another Moses whose very presence brings conviction and power and change. Who is this God? Well, he's an empowering God. That's who he is. But I have to tell you, he's also a vengeful God. He's a vengeful God. Verses 4 and following. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne, even the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, And all the firstborn of the cattle, there shall be... A great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast. And we'll stop there for a moment. I will go out, verse 4, God says. By the way, the Hebrew is emphatic. The pronoun I is emphatic. We know how this is going to happen. We'll get there in chapter 12. The angel of death goes through the land. Who was this angel of death? I think I might be able to build an argument that it was God himself. I will go out. He says it again in chapter 12, verses 12 and 13. I will. You say, well, how can you be so sure? I can't, but I can tell you this. The Bible says vengeance is mine. I will repay. I will repay, saith the Lord, right? Critics have attempted to explain away every other miracle that has taken place in this series of judgments. Cattle still get boils. Locust plague still happen. One right now in Kenya, which is unprecedented. They still happen. Still, you still get frog pestilences. Darkness. Well, darkness might be a bit of a stretch, but there are eclipses, right? So we can explain that away. But the death of a firstborn? What possible natural phenomena could 
Could that ever fall under? And the answer is, that's a rhetorical question, by the way, none. No question about it, but the death of every single firstborn, right down to the cattle, would die, not protected by the blood. And speaking of firstborn, in chapter 4, God called Israel his firstborn. And now he says, the firstborn of all Egypt, unprotected by the blood, right down to the cattle, are going to die. It's as if God was saying, you decimated, you decimated my firstborn, I'm going to kill yours. You say, that doesn't sound like God. Listen, God, God isn't just a God of love. He's not just a God of grace and mercy. He's a holy God. He's a just God. And he's holy and just in all that he does. There's no estimating the power of the right of the firstborn back in Bible times. And cross-culturally, the firstborn literally ruled. Even today, parents, though they'd rarely admit it, their firstborns, they're just a little extra special. Well, that's not new. Nothing new under the sun there. That every single firstborn man and beast would die would have resulted in unimaginable horror. And the text certainly reveals that. Verse 6, there's this great cry throughout all of Egypt. And it's the same Hebrew expression as in chapter 3 and verse 7, when God hears the cry of his people. Same Hebrew expression. Again, it's as if God is saying, I heard my people's cry, and it was great. And I'm hearing your cry, but I'm going to ignore it, and it's a greater cry. God is a just God, and there is a limit to his patience when he meets out his judgment. In contrast to the weeping that was going on throughout all of Egypt, you see that they're just like never before or ever again, the scripture says here. Not a peep. Not a peep is made in all of Goshen where the Israelites were. Not a peep. Not even a dog could be heard barking. Interestingly, by the way, the Egyptians had, sure enough, they had one for everything else, they had a dog god. Interestingly, Anubis was the dog god, the god of the underworld, watch it, who directed passage of others, of those who died into the afterlife. That was his job. Well, there would be plenty of Egyptians going into the afterlife after this night, but their dog god would be powerless. Today, millions are weeping over the loss of billions of dollars to the money god. Whole economies around the world have been rocked. Cities have been shut down. Elderly are being turned away from hospitals in Italy. And yes, more will die. No question about it. And through it all, hear me, dear one, through it all, your God is holy, he's just, he's righteous, and we do not deserve less hurt or more blessing. Did you hear that? We don't deserve less hurt or more blessing. Because he is God. Who is this God? Well, let's move on. He's a distinguishing God. Middle of verse 7 tells us that he, he's a distinguishing God. The, the Lord makes a distinction, he says, between Egypt and Israel. And this is, a, this is a message that is throughout the word of God. Clear lines of demarcation between God's people and the people that are not 
his. In this particular plague and the plagues that from the fourth plague on up, no one ever was impacted in Goshen. That was a miracle in and of itself. In fact, we're told in chapter 9 and verse 7 that, that Pharaoh even sent out a representative to make sure the cattle weren't impacted uh, in Goshen. While the rest of Egypt, they were killed. One of the greatest messages of the Bible is distinction. The book of Leviticus is all about distinctions, holy, unholy. The book of Titus, which we just concluded here recently, says the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us to say no to ungodliness and unrighteousness and worldly lust and to live soberly and righteously and godly in this present age. Looking for our blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. That's what he did. He gave himself for us that he might purchase for himself his, a, a people of his own, his own special people, a distinct kind of people. That's us who actually know him. God is a distinguishing God. I know what John 3.16 says, and it's true. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And yet there is a special, eternal, and unchanging love, a passionate, yearning, jealous love that God has for his own people. So listen. Listen carefully what I'm saying here. You don't have to be a distinguished person to be a part of God's distinguished people. Because he's a gracious God. He's a merciful God. He's a loving God. He's a saving God. And you don't have to be a distinguished person to be a part of God's distinguished people. You trust in his son and you'll be a part of that which lasts forever in glory. You do have to do what Pharaoh would not do. You have to repent. You have to turn from your sin. You have to place your faith in the one true and living God. Who is this God? Well, I have one more thing to share with you from the text. He's a limited God. Not in the sense that he's limited, because God is omnipotent. Nothing limits him, per se. But he has limits that he puts on us. And so with all of this, we're told in verse 8, And all these servants shall come down to me, bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you, and after that I will go out. And he went out from, this is Moses, went out from Pharaoh in a hot anger. Have you ever read that? Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and did not let the people of Israel go out of the land. The time for God's patience was over. Moses was angry. The Hebrew says, in the heat of anger. It's almost as if God through Moses was saying, enough! And it was enough. And someday, dear friend, if you do not have a genuine relationship, I know many of you have lip service, but it's not real. And if it's not real, there's going to come a day where the patience of God, who is long-suffering to you to the present moment, is going to run out. And he'll say enough. 
and he will call you to an account. Those, Alex Motier says, those who will not bow to God's word must bend to God's judgment. Remember, we've said this before, and we'll see it again in chapter 12. On all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. And he did. And he will execute his judgments on your gods as well. God wouldn't be so zealous. God wouldn't be so jealous that he would take down the gods of our culture, would he? Well, I would say no if he's a changing God, but if God never changes, then that tells me that he's the God who's going to get after the gods of whatever culture there is, and I think he's getting after ours. And I say this without any equivocation. There is no question that God, who is on the throne right now, is operating throughout this crisis. It's a world crisis. Every single country, every single continent on the face of this earth is facing this crisis. I don't know how bad it's going to get. I don't know if it's going to dial up or dial down. I know this. God knows. And there's no question in my mind that he is after the gods of our culture to bring them down. I've listed 10 of them. This isn't exhaustive, but there are 10 that come and came immediately to my mind, like the patriot God. I'm a patriot, but I got news for you. The United States of America is not listed in the Bible. There's not one promise in this book that we're going to outlast any other country or any particular era. Thank God for our country. But don't make it an idol because God doesn't share his glory with anyone else. How about the image God? You know, that which is the latest, the hippest, the coolest, the hottest. And why would I put Kanye West up there anyway? Maybe it's because, maybe it's because even Conway, Kanye himself has recognized that his image will only last so long. And he needs to worship the one true God and his son, Jesus Christ. How about the sport God? I'm not a prude. I love sports. This, I mean, March, we're into March Madness. Uh, I guess it's March Sadness. Finally, I thought myself there, our country recognizes that lives trump the idol worship of sport. And thus, we can't gather and watch our sports for now anyway. The entertainment God. Do I need to say any more? We are drowning in entertainment. God doesn't share his glory with anyone or anything else. The wealth God. Anybody he, uh, lose a shekel or two here in the last week? Through the stock market, I was reminded of what God said in Haggai, uh, in Haggai chapter 1, where he says, Consider your ways. You've sown much. You've invested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. Have you ever read that? That's what we're talking about here, isn't it? If your God is wealth and all that goes along with it, remember, God doesn't share his glory with anything else. 
closely related to the material God. It might not just be wealth, but you just got to have it. You got to have the stuff. You got to have the latest and the greatest. God doesn't share his glory with things. The entitlement God, which says, I deserve. I was talking to a young woman that was formerly a part of this church in her youth. I, I found out just days earlier that she'd walked away from her husband, just left him. Now, he wasn't a rock star husband, but there wasn't any reason for her to leave him. I asked you why you're leaving him. You know what the first words out of her mouth were? Because I deserve better than what I have. I, I couldn't believe it. And this was from someone I thought for sure should have known better. Stop getting and start giving. The I deserve, the entitlement God should never be mentioned to those who love the one true God. Shouldn't be a part of their lives. The addiction God. I've said for many years, you show me, there are two people who will lie to you every time. Addicts and adulterers. I have been doing this for over 30 years and I've never met an addict and I've never met an adulterer who wouldn't look you in the eye and lie to your face. That's why we have a program right here called Gospel Center Recovery to help those of you who struggle with addictions. It meets on Tuesday nights at 6.30. We'd love to be able to encourage you. I'm sure it'll be fewer than 200. You can come and get help. No matter where your particular addiction, be it alcohol, be it drugs, be it pornography, be it the, the addiction of... There are so many addictions. We Sex, and speaking of which... Let's move on to the lust God. Infidelity is destroying the church. And I'm talking generally. But it's destroying the church. Jeremiah said, they don't even blush anymore. And we're seeing that in our own generation. And dear friend, if you're married, take your wife's hand right now. Look at your ring. Look at her ring. I just married a beautiful young couple just yesterday. And I told them, I reminded them the night before I put my hands on, on them as they sat in separate chairs. And I said, hey, guys, this is your last night sleeping alone. Of course, they were excited. And I said to them at the point of pronouncing them husband and wife, I said, look at these rings. These rings depict the authority that each one of you have in one another's lives. They're a picture of oneness. They're a picture of saying, I'm taken by another. And I told this couple at that wedding ceremony, as you look at your honeymoon bed, and I want you, I, I, I charged them to stare at the bed before they jumped into it. Because that bed is meant to be more than just a place for sleep and exhilarating experiences. Most, if not most, couples sleep in the same bed, and it's meant to be a perpetual picture of the oneness, the social oneness Yes, the sexual oneness, but every other oneness that they could possibly have in their lives. Heart oneness. Stare at your bed tonight if you are a Christian and you are married. You and your wife, stare at your bed and look at what this represents and be done with lust because it's destroying the church. And finally, the 10th God I want to list is the health God. Meg Butcher lists several questions that every person here in this health-crazed generation in which we live, and I'm not anti-healthy, but you ought to ask yourself, 
And it'll help you to see whether you've taken your health too far. And it's become a God. I'll just, I'll just list three of them. One, when it comes first. When your health comes first. It's become a God. Because God doesn't share his glory with anyone else or anything else. When it consumes your mind, ask this honestly, does your health consume your mind? If it does, it's a God. If you can't stop, that is, you, have, there's nothing, you just keep going. You got to have it. You got to do it. You got to do this. You got to do this. You, gotta, you can't stop. And if somebody did try to stop you, you'd have a meltdown. If that's the case, it's a God. And God doesn't share his glory with anyone or anything else. In fact, here's what the scripture says. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. And as we wind this up here this morning, speaking to you in your various locations, there is one last God that God, one last little God that the one true God was going to judge, it would be Pharaoh himself, who was looked upon as the son of Ra, the God of gods. And it would be a picture of the judgment, judgment yet to come, the greatest judgment which is yet to come. The whole Passover would be a picture of the cross of Christ, where God's wrath was poured out on his very own son. And I can tell you this, when you look at all these plagues, and what God was doing. God was unilaterally doing, on his own, exercising these plagues, throwing in the gnats, the frogs, the darkness, the hail, the boils. The, the Jews didn't have anything to do with that. They were protected. Until now, God had personally, sovereignly, and unilaterally protected Israel. Now, however, he was about to require, wait for it, their cooperation. They would have to do something. Because if your faith is real, works don't save us. But if your faith is real, it produces good works. It produces something. It produces a response. And as crazy as it would sound, they'd have to take the blood of a lamb and put it on their homes. It would not be enough that the lamb was examined. It would not be enough that the lamb was killed. It would not be enough that the lamb's blood was shed, but that they would personally have to apply it to their homes and then death would pass over them. It wasn't enough that the lamb of God, the Lord Jesus, died for you, shed his blood for you, hung on that cross for you out of sheer love for you and would rise from the dead thereafter you must repent and believe that good news if you want the ultimate angel of death who will take you into a darkness that will never end to pass over you and may God help you to believe the gospel and to remember that God loves you and he has been very patient with you up to this very moment but there is a limit to his patience. Don't presume upon the patience of God. Let's pray together. Our Father, you are God and we are not. And we are living in a day of great uncertainty, but it's not uncertain to you. 
You're more than aware of what's going on. You know the beginning and the end. And your son, our Lord Jesus, our Savior and Lord, is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Oh God, we have been reminded today that while you are a gracious, merciful and patient God, there is a limit to that patience. And I pray for those who are watching and listening, every little boy, every little girl, every young teenager, guy and gal, every college student aspiring to tackle the world, every married couple who've been together for years, old and young alike, speak to our hearts to lift up our hearts to you who loved us with an everlasting love and whose arms are strong. And you will lift up those who are struggling right now. God, who do love you, wonder what's going to happen next, just encourage them, whisper into their hearts that you are a gracious God and you'll, you'll get them through this too. And speak to the hearts, Lord, of those who don't know you, but long to know you now and to trust your son Jesus as their savior, we pray in his name.